was taking a trip on a plane the other day Just wishing that I could get out When the man next to me saw the book in my hand And asked me what it was about So I settled back in my seat A bestseller, I said A history and mystery in one and Then I opened up the book and began to read From Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John student ministry. We want to pray for them at the end of our service today. 
our Deacon of the Week, Todd Holloman, will be coming forward and uh, he'll be leading our church in a commissioning prayer for them as they get ready to leave and go where Robbie and the construction group just got back from there in Wasilla. So pray for them next week and uh, you should probably you should even have a card from the lobby that you can put on your refrigerator just as a reminder to you each day uh, to pray for these young people as they are away. We look forward to hearing their report uh, when they get back of how God has uh, worked in and through their lives and we pray that the uh, church there that they're going to would be strengthened. I want to ask you to open your Bibles to a couple of different places of Scripture but before we get into that, if you don't have today's study guide, would you raise your hand? Because as always, you're going to need that. So raise your hand high so they, and keep it up so they can get one of the guides to you. As I've been saying each week, we're in a doctrinal study right now, a little different from a typical sermon time. So bear with me in this. We're going through the, the basic doctrines of our faith that evangelical Christians embrace. There's a lot of things, a lot of differences among denominations and so forth, but there are many similarities. There are essential doctrines of our faith, and that's what we've been concentrating on. Now, after today, for the next couple of weeks, we'll be putting this on pause and having more of a regular sermon time as we, we kick off Vacation Bible School and Father's Day and messages related to that. And so after today, we will take a bit of a break. And I want to remind those watching online that you can go right under the live video feed and that PDF box if you'll click on that. The same study guide is available for you there that our folks here in person have. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Find Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, and Ephesians chapter 5. Luke 4 and Ephesians 5. In Luke 4, this morning we're talking about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which is known as what? pneumatology the doctrine of the Holy Spirit look at verse 14 of Luke 4 Jesus returned to Galilee and the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside he was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then over in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 15, Paul says there, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make melody from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, today as we look at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, I pray that he would be to us exactly what Jesus said he would be, a teacher 
In the upper room discourse, Jesus was telling his disciples that when he left them and went back to you, Father, that he would send another, the Spirit, who would be our comforter, our helper, and our teacher. Father, we thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit. And as Paul says in Ephesians 1, from the moment of the new birth, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. But Lord, we do know the challenge each day is to be filled, to be empty of ourselves, empty of our own desires and agendas, repentant of sin, and walking in the Spirit. And God, I pray that that would be a reality in our lives. Because we are helpless to do your work without the power of your Spirit. There would be no fruit in it whatsoever. Lord, be with us today and bring glory to your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As, as we look under number one, going to get right into things this morning. And by the way, this morning is going to be, I hope, pretty simple for you. Uh, we're not covering anything complex this morning. Uh, it's going to be very practical especially as we get toward the end of today some very practical things to indicate to you about the ministry of the Holy Spirit but under the introductory matters I've given you a quote from our first Southern Baptist uh, theologian John L. Dagg look at what he says there no believer who has any just sense of his dependence on the Holy Spirit for the divine life which he enjoys and all its included blessings can be indifferent towards the agent by whom all this good is bestowed. He cannot willingly grieve the Holy Spirit by whom he is sealed to the day of redemption. He will seek to know in all things what is the mind of the Spirit. And to him the communion of the Holy Spirit will be the sweetest foretaste of heaven. That can be enjoyed on earth. And to him, therefore, the study of the Holy Spirit's character and office will be a delight. That's a great statement. Now, folks, we need to understand and, and recognize up front that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit has caused some discomfort and even division through recent decades uh, in the evangelical community. And why would this be? Largely because of the influence of the charismatic movement. Charismatic movement, of course, we think of that Azusa Street Revival, 1906, and what transpired there. And then you get into post-World War II, uh, years in the 50s and then especially around 1960 and the emergence of the Pentecostal movement and the, and the charismatic movement. In fact, if you look at a lot of Southern Baptist Church constitution and bylaws, and I've looked at ours this week and sure enough it's in there too, in the preamble, the very beginning of our church constitution, it will clarify up front that we're a church, part of the Southern Baptist Convention, and not to be identified in any way with the modern-day charismatic movement. That's in print in your constitution. Now, why have evangelical Christians express that concern to even put something like that in their constitution well it's because of some of the abuses and excesses that we've seen among some charismatic Christians and some of the emphases that they have had that we would not all agree with and so this is an area that has has caused a little bit of discomfort however whatever abuses 
we might think they've introduced, this should not allow us to disagree or be divided over what the Bible itself says about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. After all, he's the third member of the Godhead, the triune Godhead, along with the Father and the Son. And so if we allow ourselves to shy away from studying about the Holy Spirit, we've robbed ourselves of something of the richness of the Godhead. As Dag wrote in that statement I read a moment ago, pneumatology should be a delight to the believer. Now, hopefully one can see in doctrinal studies, and if you read any systematic theology volumes, the overall structure and pattern that you'll typically find in theology. We began with the study of theology proper, the doctrine of God. And we looked at creation and providence and revelation, both general revelation and special revelation. We covered the doctrine of scripture. We moved into the person and work of Jesus Christ. Today we look at the, the doctrine of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Then we'll go into the doctrine of man and of sin and salvation and how redemption is applied. And then we'll follow that up by looking at the doctrine of the church. And we'll conclude with the study of eschatology or end time issues. But through all of the, the flow of systematic theology, we see in the Bible how each member of the Trinity is at work, very active in the meta-narrative of redemption. The meta-narrative, the grand narrative of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is one grand narrative of redemption. And what do we see? We see how each and every member of the Godhead is intimately involved in that meta-narrative of redemption. Now, some of the early church fathers wrote that that God did not choose to reveal a full pneumatology too soon because the children of Israel would have been prone to draw conclusions of polytheism. Whether you agree with that or not, that was the feeling among some of the early church fathers. Uh, more recently, that great scholar at Princeton Theological Seminary, back when Princeton was a conservative uh, college and seminary training ministers for the gospel, B.B. Warfield, one of the pre uh, professors there, he said much the same thing. He indicated that had a full disclosure of the person and work of the Holy Spirit occurred too soon, this may, have a, this may have caused harm to the people of God. Obviously, one has to come to their own conclusions as to whether these are accurate concerns. Now, I've got to personally say that I don't agree with that because of the way the Holy Spirit shows up from the very opening verses in the Bible. Uh, so I think the Holy Spirit is replete with a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But I, I do think they have a valid point that we don't see a full-blown pneumatology until we get to the New Testament. Reasons why? We'll have to leave that to God. But the beautiful thing is, over the course of the full canon of Scripture, we see all of these things come to light and communicated to us. Amen? God is a God who communicates to His people. Now, I want you to notice with me next the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. It would be, again, in my estimation, it would be a miscalculation to indicate in any way that we don't see very much of the Holy Spirit until we come to the New Testament. From time to time, you'll hear people say that. It, you don't hear a lot. In fact, you'll probably hear it seldom, but I have heard it of people even in the church that you don't see anything of the Holy Spirit much actually until you come to the New Testament. Again, that's not accurate. 
from the opening verses of the Bible, what do we see the Holy Spirit doing? We see the Holy Spirit moving across the surface of the waters at creation. We also see in the book of Genesis the Holy Spirit giving Joseph the ability to do what? Interpret dreams. Thank you. Exactly. And we see the Spirit representing the sovereign presence of God. Let, let's continue through, through Scripture and see what kind of what even the Old Testament reveals. In the book of Exodus... We see the Holy Spirit giving gifts for his people to build the tabernacle. Now folks, when we talk about spiritual gifts, what do we normally think of? We come to those New Testament passages that, that talk about spiritual gifts, right? The gift of an evangelist, the gift of a pastor teacher, the gift of, a, of, of an administrator or leadership, the gift of helps or service. We think of gifts like that. But I want you to remember from, from the, the Pentateuch, starting even in the book of, of Exodus, how God gave certain gifts to people, craftsmanship, so they would be able to do things related to the building and decorating of the tabernacle and then the temple. Who did this among God's people? The Holy Spirit. In the historical books, we see the Holy Spirit coming upon kings, such as Saul and David, and anointing them for their administration and their leadership, how they would lead the nation. I want you to look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 10 for a moment. I want, I want you to see this, 1 Samuel chapter 10, and, and look at verses 9 through 11. 1 Samuel 10, 9 through 11 says, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servants arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, what is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also now among the prophets? And so the Holy Spirit would come upon the kings of Israel, anointing them for their work. Well, we come over to the Psalms, and we see the Spirit leading God's people in praise and worship and being everywhere present as David confesses in Psalm 139. Remember Psalm 139? David said, if I wanted to, where, you know, where could I flee from your presence? And he says, you know, if I ascend up into the heavens... You're there. Your spirit's there. If I, if I go into the depths of the earth, you're there. If I go to the east, go to the west, any direction, you're there. Your spirit has encompassed me. I can't flee from your presence. In many places throughout the wisdom writings, the spirit enables worship and brings cleansing from sin and a renewal to the life of the worshiper. Also, David cries out in Psalm 51 that God would not remove his spirit from him. David's heart cries, God cleanse me of my sin. I've sinned. He's talking about that sin with Bathsheba. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Then in the prophetic books, we see the Holy Spirit coming upon the prophets, moving the prophets to be able to speak and say, thus saith the Lord. Now, among the later or writing prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel have the most detailed pneumatology. Who can forget that vision of the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37? And how the Spirit of God gave new life to those bones and raised up an army of his people, showing how God would one day recreate his people and restore the people of God. And so what I'm saying is through all the different genres of the Old Testament, 
we do see both the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I, I simply don't understand what anybody is talking about when they say that you really don't see the Holy Spirit until you get to the New Testament. Truth is, you see Him everywhere. Third thing, let's look at the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Now, here, you know, granted, it is in the New Testament that we see the full-blown nature of the person and work of the Holy Spirit communicated to us. And let's kind of look, kind of peruse through different portions of the New Testament see this. At the baptism of Jesus, what do we see? We see the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. We see the Spirit driving Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We see the religious leaders accusing Jesus of doing what he did by the power of the devil. And how did Jesus respond? He responded by pointing out that he was doing what he was doing through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this meant that the kingdom of God had arrived. It also made the religious leaders guilty of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Luke points out in Luke 4, that text that I wrote a moment, read a moment ago, that Jesus, he was quoting from Isaiah 61, demonstrating and proclaiming that his whole entire ministry was a demonstration that the Holy Spirit was upon him, anointing him. Then in John's gospel, Jesus points out that the new birth is from above. The birth of someone being born of the Spirit. Jesus pointed out, you know, there's, there's a physical birth. There's a spiritual birth. And that the spiritual birth is from above. The spiritual birth is from the Holy Spirit. And so, folks, that means that the new birth is so much more than someone just deciding one day that they're going to become a Christian. Somebody once, once wisely said that in the evangelical church today, we are dangerously close to decision generation versus regeneration. You know, fill out this card, be baptized, congratulations, you're a Christian. But folks, on the contrary, the regeneration that the Holy Spirit brings about when he convicts of sin and draws you to, to Jesus changes a person from the inside out. The old is gone, the new has come. And the results of this are what? New desires. New desires towards the things of God. And a new attitude towards sin. No wonder Jesus said, if a man wants to see the kingdom of heaven, he must be born again. Jesus also said, no one can come to me unless my Father's Spirit draws him. So the new birth is what? A result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit convicting someone of their sin and drawing them to faith in Jesus, and they are converted from the inside out. I can't tell you the number of people in my ministry, and any pastor will tell you this, the amount of people that come to you for counseling and say, Pastor, when I was a child or a teenager, can a child or a teenager be saved? Absolutely, they can be saved. But I've had so many come to me and tell me they were at a church event, they raised their hand, filled out a card, said a prayer, and a preacher or somebody said, congratulations, you're, you're a Christian now. And they've come to me and say, said, Pastor, I wasn't a bit more a Christian than the man on the moon. And my heart wasn't changed in any regard. I still lived in sin and, and, and had no desire towards the things of God. I'd open up my Bible and read it. I might as well have been reading Chinese. I'd go to church and listen to sermons. I had no idea what the speaker was talking about. But when I was saved, it's like light bulbs were turned on. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
And let me add that this is also an emphasis that was pointed out during the Protestant Reformation. You see, up until the Protestant Reformation, not exclusively, but probably primarily up until the Protestant Reformation, the emphasis had been more on the person of the Holy Spirit. But the Protestant Reformation also emphasized the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Reformers emphasized two great works of the Holy Spirit. One was what I just mentioned, regeneration. Because of the emphasis in the Protestant Reformation of the fact that men are dead in trespasses and sins, it was emphasized that the Holy Spirit must be the one to spiritually quicken a person and bring about spiritual life. Whereas previously that person was spiritually dead. A spiritually dead person can't quicken themselves. And Paul says we were dead in trespasses and sins. If we're going to be born again, it must be a birth of the Spirit and not of ourselves. A second Reformation emphasis concerning the work of the Holy Spirit has to do with illumination. Not only regeneration, but illumination. Because the Roman Catholic Church taught the necessity of a human priest at church to tell you what to believe, the Reformation emphasized the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. So that any believer can sit down with a Bible open on their lap and they can read it and they can study it and they can understand it. It doesn't mean they'll understand it fully, but they can begin to understand it and grow in their knowledge of God's Word because of the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And the Reformers emphasize you don't have to have a priest. You don't have to depend upon a human priest to tell you everything about the Bible. You can read the Bible for yourself. Why? Because of the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. Now, this wasn't to discount the presence of teachers in the church, the gift of teachers, the gift of evangelists, the gift of pastors. It wasn't to discount any of that because those are, those are gifts that God gives to the church. It's just to say that you yourself can sit down with your Bible and read it and understand it. Why? Because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He brings about regeneration, the new birth, and then he illuminates. He illuminates God's Word. He's your teacher. In the upper room with his disciples, Jesus pointed out that the Holy Spirit would be their teacher, their comforter, and their helper. At the Great Commission, Jesus said his followers are to go and be witnesses and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit coming upon believers on the day of Pentecost, enabling them to speak in other tongues, known languages. The other tongues in Acts chapter 2 were known languages. In Acts 13, we see the Holy Spirit directing the, the ministry and mission of Paul and Barnabas and leading the church to anoint Paul and Barnabas for the work of missions to which he'd called them. As we continue to just kind of peruse through what the New Testament says about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, in the letters of Paul, the Holy Spirit is referred to some 145 times. In 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, in 2 Corinthians 3 and Romans chapter 8, those are, those are chapters in the New Testament that contain the largest amount of material on pneumatology. The work of the Holy Spirit, person and work. For Paul, he makes it clear to the Corinthians that success in preaching the gospel is not a matter of human reasoning, but a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who enables somebody 
to believe and understand the gospel. Again, why is this necessary? Paul writes, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who gives spiritual gifts to his church. We'll talk more about that in a moment. In the letter to the Ephesians, we we see the wonderful Trinitarian ministry in chapter 1 of the Father choosing us, the Son redeeming us through His blood, and the Spirit sealing us. Folks, Paul makes so clear in Ephesians 1 that at the moment of the new birth, all believers are baptized and sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's, mark, it's God's mark of ownership on His children. The baptism in the Spirit is not something that comes later on down the road for the believer. At the moment of conversion, we receive the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 says, No one can even say Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit. And again, as I pointed out a moment ago, Jesus described the new birth as a birth from above, a birth of the Spirit. Paul indicated in Romans 8 9 that not to have the Spirit, not to have the Spirit indicates what? An unsaved status. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to God. And so the biblical evidence is that from the moment of salvation, a person is baptized with the Spirit. There are many feelings, feeling, feel, feelings, tongue tangled. There are many feelings, but one baptism. Now, as far as the feelings being multiple, Paul says in Ephesians 5, be ye being filled with the Spirit, constant need. Now somebody asked, what about the case of those disciples in Acts 19? Wouldn't they they be a testimony to us that you can be saved and then receive the Holy Spirit at some later date? No, they're not a testimony of that at all. It'd be an an error to conclude that they were believers. They had only been baptized with John's baptism. Paul explained to them, you'll recall, he explained to them the gospel and the way of the Lord. They believed upon Jesus and then they were baptized with the Spirit. In the book of Revelation, John's in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And he receives that vision of the consummation of all things. And so literally from beginning to end in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, what do we see? We see the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Again, folks, it's essential to recognize the Holy Spirit as the third member of the Godhead. And he displays all the attributes that the Father and the Son possess. And so that any theology that slights the Holy Spirit in any way cannot cannot be said to be a biblical theology. What about the importance of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? Listen to just some of the conclusions of one of your Southern Baptist theologians, Millard Erickson. He says there are several reasons why the study of the Holy Spirit is of special significance for us. One is that the Holy Spirit is the point at which the Trinity becomes personal to the believer. The Holy Spirit is active with the lives of believers. He's resident with us. He is the particular person of the Trinity through whom the entire triune Godhead currently works in us. He goes on to say the Holy Spirit has occupied center stage from the time of Pentecost on. That is the period covered by the book of Acts and the apostles and the ensuing periods of church history. And as he points out though, one difficulty in the study of the Holy Spirit is the absence of concrete imagery. What does he mean by an absence of concrete imagery? 
Well, when the Bible speaks of the Father, we know what a Father is like, don't we? We have a concrete image. When Scripture speaks of a Son, likewise, we know what a Son is like. And additionally, Jesus came in the flesh, in the incarnation. And so with the Father and the Son, we have, we have some concrete images in our minds that, that we don't have when it comes to the Holy Spirit. And Erickson says this makes him more mysterious perhaps, but no less real. Now let's talk about the deity of the Holy Spirit. The deity of the Holy Spirit. There are references to the Holy Spirit where he is interchangeable with references to God. Remember that occasion in Acts chapter 5 where Ananias and Sapphira have lied? And what's Peter point out to them? That they have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then what does Peter go on to say? You have not lied to men but you have lied to God. So he says, you lied to the Spirit. You've not lied to men, but lied to God. And so lying to God and lying to the Holy Spirit is the same thing. Another illustration of this is Paul's writings to the Corinthians about the body being the temple of God. Sometimes he'll refer to the temple of God. Sometimes he'll refer to the temple of the Holy Spirit using the two interchangeably. And then in 1 Corinthians 2, 10-11, we see that the Holy Spirit possesses the attributes of God. Paul says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now the power of, of the Holy Spirit is prominently spoken of in the New Testament. Jesus pointed out that it's the Holy Spirit who changes hearts and brings conviction at regeneration. Again, I spoke of that earlier. Hebrews 9.14 talks about the eternality of the Holy Spirit. That there's never been a time that He was not, never be a time that He won't be. And then also, in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and through 21, the inspiration of the Scripture is attributed to the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16 says the Scripture is God-breathed, and Peter and 2 Peter 1 says that men, the men who wrote Scripture were carried along by the Spirit as they wrote. So they weren't just simply writing their words or the words of men, they were writing God's words. And the word he uses was the same word that was used uh, in the book of Acts of the ship that Paul was on, the sails being carried along by the wind. Peter says men were carried along by the Spirit to write. And so the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, of Scripture is what we see in the New Testament. And, and then finally, as mentioned earlier, the baptismal formula. We are to baptize new believers in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so in all of these ways, we see the Scripture pointing out what? The deity of the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about the personality of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. He's not an it. In fact, the masculine pronoun is used when referring to him. And what makes that even more striking is the, the Greek word for spirit is neuter. Now, normally in Greek, you have agreement between pronouns uh, and their antecedents. You have agreement in person, number, and gender. And so you would expect to find a, new, a neuter pronoun in referring to the Spirit. But that's not what you find. You find a masculine pronoun. 
Again, he's a person, not an it. You know, in Star Wars, what'd they say? May the, may the what? May the force be with you. No, that's, that's not who the Holy Spirit is, some impersonal force. Jesus also said that the Holy Spirit would be another of the same kind as he. And of course, Jesus is a person. The Holy Spirit possesses intelligence, will, and emotions. And, and those, are, those are fundamental elements of personhood. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. You can't grieve an it, a thing. And he exhibits the actions of a person. He guides into truth. He convicts of sin. He performs miracles. And he intercedes. Remember what Paul said about that in Acts 8.26. When we're weak and we don't even know how to pray. We got a burden on our hearts. We go before God in prayer. And we're not even sure exactly what we ought to be asking for. Paul says... In moments like that, the Holy Spirit, because He perfectly knows our need, and He perfectly knows God because He's the Spirit of God, He's able to intercede for us perfectly. Bringing our need together and our petition with God's will. So thank the Lord for the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit. Again, just some implications. In his shorter volume, his, his bigger volume, Miller Erickson, much, much larger than this, but his, uh, his shorter volume, just listen quickly to what he says, some of the ways he concludes this. All of the foregoing considerations lead to one conclusion. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. And that person is God just as fully and in the same way as are the Father and the Son. A correct understanding of who and what the Holy Spirit is carries certain implications. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a vague force. He's someone with whom we can have a personal relationship. Someone to whom we can and should pray. The Holy Spirit being fully divine is to be accorded the same honor and respect that we give to the Father and the Son. It is appropriate to worship Him as we do Father and Son. He should not be thought of as in any sense inferior in essence to them, although His role may sometimes be subordinated to theirs. The Holy Spirit is one with the Father and the Son. His work is the expression and execution of what the three of them have planned together. There's no tension among their persons and activities. And fourthly, he says, the implication of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, God is not far off. In the Holy Spirit, the triune God comes close. So close as to dwell in each believer. He, would, he goes on to say here, think about this. This is a bold statement. Just think it. You probably hadn't thought about it. God is even more intimately involved with us now than in the incarnation. Through the operation of the Spirit, He has truly become Emmanuel, God with us. Now, let's move on to talk about, to close out talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and this is not exhaustive, and this is just kind of a wrap-up of some of the things we've said. We, we see Him at work in creation. We see Him at work interpreting dreams. We see Him at work giving gifts of craftsmanship. Giving prophets their message and power. Giving kings their administrative ability. The writing of scripture. 
Jesus' conception. The empowerment of Jesus' life and ministry. He always displayed the presence and work of the Holy Spirit in perfection. Bringing about conversion. Conviction and regeneration. Convicting of sin in a believer's life. In John 14 to 16, Jesus also said, He's the one who convicts and judges the world of sin and judgment. Comforting the believer. Teaching the believer. In that same section of John's gospel, Jesus said he would bring things to mind to the believer when we need it the most. Sealing the believer at conversion. One more thing to say about this in Ephesians 4.30. Paul points out that sealing with the Holy Spirit is unto the day of redemption. What's that mean? Your salvation is secure. Amen? He seals you at the moment of your conversion. He seals you with the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. He empowers the believer for works of ministry. And he gives gifts to believers to benefit the church. I'm going to give you four passages to write down. You may have these in your notes. In fact, I think you do. Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4.10, and 1 Corinthians 12. Those are passages in the New Testament that, that talk about the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the body of Christ. And what Paul points out there in 1 Corinthians 12, for example is that the gifts are given as determined by the Holy Spirit. You have the spiritual gift that God wants you to have. It may not be the one you would choose for yourself. It's the one God wanted you to have. And so he gives gifts as he determines. And the gifts are for the benefit of the body of Christ. He doesn't give you a gift simply for yourself. He gives you a gift to use in the building up of the bride of Christ. No one has all the gifts. None of the gifts are to be downplayed. Mm, You don't have my gift. I'm more important than you. No, can't say that. And you also can't say, oh, your gift's better than mine. I'm not needed. No, all the gifts are needed. And then Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 13 to point out that all the gifts should be carried out in a spirit of love. Let's don't forget Galatians 5.22, the ninefold fruit of the Spirit. Who brings that about? The Holy Spirit. Listen to what Paul says, and then we'll, we'll close with this today. Notice the contrast. He says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things there is no law. That ninefold fruit of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit brings about in your life and my life as we grow in Christ.
me ask you to bow in prayer with me for a moment. That ninefold fruit of the Spirit, does that characterize you? Love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, self-control. Or do you see the works of the flesh? Is there evidence of the Spirit's work in your life bringing about change? Now, obviously, if you're not in Christ today, the answer would be no. You don't see those things. You need to come to Christ. And remember what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. He doesn't glorify himself. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. Is he drawing you to Jesus? Come to him. The new birth is a miracle that he does. If you've not experienced that miracle, say, God, do that in my life. Convert my soul. Bring about regeneration in me. The new life in Christ. Lord, I just want to surrender to you and, and ask you to bring that about in my life. If you're a believer and perhaps your focus lately has been too much on the world and the things of the world, would you confess that this morning? And come back to that daily walk with the Lord, allowing Him to do in and through you what He desires. Be ye being filled with the Spirit. By the way, that's a command. That's a command Paul gives in Ephesians 5. Be ye being filled with the Spirit. Be emptied of yourself. Repentant of sin. And seeking Christ above all. Lord, we thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because we cannot live the Christian life in our own power and strength. And you've not asked us to. And that's why over and over we see the admonitions given to us that we would be filled with the Spirit and that we would walk in the Spirit and bear the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, bring all these things about in our lives. And so as we speak to those in the world about our faith in Jesus, that they will be able to see faith in action in us. Not that they would say, well, I don't see any of that in your life. But they would say, oh, I see now what you're telling me. I understand why you are like you are and why you're different. Lord, may that be our testimony. And always may we follow you. And may you work your work in and through us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please?